Okay, our sermon text this morning is going to be um, Genesis. Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to 24. Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 to 24. And before we read that, we'll pray and seek the Lord's blessing on his word. Please join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your word, the Holy Scriptures. And we pray, Father, that our hearts would be made meek and ready to receive your word for that which it truly is, the very words of God. Father, may we be given ears that hear, eyes that see, and hearts that are understanding and obedient. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I think I'll just read all of Genesis chapter 14, and that gives it its context. Starting at verse 1. In the days of Emraphel, king of Shinar, Ariak, king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemeba, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is, Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is, the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Chedorlaomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shever Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who are dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admah, the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Chedorlaomer, the king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar and Ariah, Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits and as soon as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fell, fled, some fell into them and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Memre the Amorite, brother of Eschol and Anah. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan, and he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them to Hobar, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the young women and the people. Verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Ana, Eschol and Memre take their share. Amen. May God bless his word to us. So, Abram returns from the battle. He returns from rescuing Lot and also rescuing all of the other captives who were from Sodom, Gomorrah, etc., those other towns. And he's met as he returns by the king of Sodom, who had run away, possibly fallen in a tar pit. One wonders if he's washed the tar off. And he's met also by Melchizedek, king of Salem. Melchizedek in scripture is really quite an important character 
and something of a mysterious character. He's mentioned only in three places, but we're told very clearly in the book of Hebrews that he is a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. So closely is he identified with the Lord Jesus that there are many who have believed that this was actually a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, Abram met Jesus as he came back from the battle. I don't read it that way. I don't think that Melchizedek is actually a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't think that's what is told us in the book of Hebrews. I'm not going to go into great detail with that until uh, we look at this passage again. This passage, we're going to look at it twice. Today we're going to look at it in terms of the narrative, that which happens, the history of it, what we are to learn directly from the narrative and the history of it. And then next time we look at this passage We'll try and bring together all of Scripture and understand what we can about Melchizedek and uh, his relationship to Abram and his relationship to the Lord Jesus and why that is such, why that uh, leads us to such important Christian doctrines. Abram returns victorious and he returns, as it were, immediately to another test. The Lord tests the righteous. We find that, for example, in Psalm 11. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. Abram is being tested yet again. You've sort of got, if you want to think of it this way, on the left hand, the king of Sodom. We know that Sodom was a very wicked city. It was a very wealthy city. It was on the plain, a well-watered plain. It was compared to the Garden of Eden, a beautiful place, a paradise Everything you might ever have wanted could be found in the land of Sodom. And on the right hand, we have this figure whom we've never met before. We're not going to meet him again in the Old Testament, though he will be spoken of in Psalm 110. A priest, an unknown priest, priest of God Most High. We're told his name is Melchizedek. Melchizedek, a king of righteousness a king of peace. We find that in the Hebrew, in the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament. What's so interesting about Melchizedek, and this is also spoken of in the book of Hebrews, is one, we know nothing of his family. We're not told from which line he comes. There were some Jewish legends that Melchizedek is actually Shem, son of Noah. If you put together the chronologies, you count up the years, you work it all out, at this point in time, Shem would probably still be alive. And So the Jews reasoned that this was Shem. I don't go with that idea or theory either. I I don't think that's the case. I think Melchizedek is a worshipper of God, functioning as a priest, functioning as a king of Salem, which would later be called Jerusalem. And what this tells us immediately is that before God formalised his covenant with Abram, Before God gave his written word through Moses and then through other prophets, God was dealing with people nation by nation, family by family, person by person. There were the faithful, there were the faithless. Remember when we looked earlier in the book of Genesis at the Tower of Babel and how the people were scattered throughout the earth, I sort of... I tried to sort of keep reminding you that amongst those who were scattered throughout the earth, there would have been the faithful and the righteous. There would have been God's people. I don't believe that God has ever left the world without witness of his grace and his glory at any time. We know that two of the sons of Noah had received promises of blessing in future times. There is no reason not to believe that from that time forward, God had his people in different places at different times. So we have Melchizedek. If um, you're taking notes, the first point that I've got here is Melchizedek is a priest, but not of the promised line. He's a priest, but not of the promised line. What does a priest do? A priest intercedes between God and man. A priest... A priest offers sacrifices on behalf of men. A priest speaks, as it were, for God. 
A priest helps mankind conduct formal religious worship of God. There are other priests in the Bible who are also not of the promised line and not priests to the Jewish nation. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with the, the, with the, the story of the life of Moses. He was raised by the Egyptians. He intercedes in a fight between two Hebrews. And uh, he struck, I mean, sorry, he intercedes in a fight or a, or a uh, problem between a Hebrew and an Egyptian. He strikes the Egyptian. The Egyptian dies. He's now guilty of murder. He realises that other people know that he is guilty of this. And so he flees. He flees from Egypt to Midian. Let's look at Exodus chapter 2, verse 16. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. Notice Midian had a priest. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. We'll leave it there. We find out that the priest's name is Ruel, and in another place in Scripture he's called Jethro, Ruel or Jethro, and that he's functioning as the priest of the Midianites. And in Exodus chapter 18, he's still considered to be a priest. Exodus chapter 18, verse 1, Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Jethro comes to visit Moses. Jethro sees what Moses is doing. Jethro speaks to Moses and says, you know what, son? You need to actually organise this nation. You can't have everyone coming to you. You need to set up a court system, a law system, and sort things out. You're taking too much burden upon yourself. We're told that Jethro and Moses made sacrifices and that Jethro departed in peace. He went his own way. To his own country. Jethro was a priest, but not a priest to the people of Israel, to the people directly descended from Abraham. There's another one. Look in the book of Numbers. Now, this man is functioning as a priest, although he's what I would call a wicked priest. In the book of Numbers, go to chapter 22. Israel has come out of Egypt into the plains of Moab, and the king of the Moabites was fearing them. Looking at verse 4 of Numbers 22, and Moab said to the elders of Midian, this horde will now lick up all the ground around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river in the land of Amor, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. They cover the face of the earth and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that whom you bless is blessed, and whom you curse is cursed. And when later on in the text we read about Balaam, as I said, a wicked man, a, a, a prophet for hire. If I were to try and compare Balaam to anyone, I would compare him to the popes of the Roman Catholic Church. Supposedly someone who speaks for God. Supposedly someone who is um, a priest to mankind. And yet he's selfish, selfishly motivated. And at one point in time, God threatens to kill him because he was so eager to curse the offspring of Abram. But what I want you to see is that Balaam offers sacrifices and God appears to Balaam and speaks to him. Turning over to Numbers chapter 23, verse 1. And Balaam said to Balak, build for me here seven altars and prepare for me here seven bulls and seven rams. Balak did as Balaam had said, and Balak and Balaam offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And Balaam said to Balak, stand beside your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me and whatever he shows me, I will tell you. And he went to a bare height and God met Balaam. And Balaam said to him, I have arranged the seven altars and I have offered on each altar a bull and a ram. And the Lord, Yahweh, put a word in Balaam's mouth and said, return to Balak and thus you shall speak. 
And he returned to him, and behold, he and all the princes of Moab were, stand, Moab were standing before his burnt offering. We'll stop there. We won't read any more. Balaam, a wicked man, a man whom God had threatened to kill because he was willing to curse the people of God. He offers sacrifices on behalf of others and he receives for others a word from God. He's functioning in this passage as a priest. He's functioning as a priest. Some kind of priesthood is operating outside of the promised line, outside of the nation of Israel. What's happening here? Well, as I said, God has had his ways of dealing with people throughout all of history. Balaam was most certainly wicked. Balaam it was who told Balak to basically, look, the only way you're going to weaken this nation of Israel because they've been blessed by God is to make God angry with them. So send some women out there. Turn the men aside. Send uh, some girls out there. Tempt them to lust. And in their lust, they'll come to idolatry. And then God will get angry with them and then they'll be weakened. Later on, the Israelites put him to death. Put him to death. When, they finally, when they finally defeat the Moabites, they find Balaam and he's put to death. That's basically the end of a priesthood functioning outside of the nation of Israel in Scripture. He's put to death. What I would say to you is that before God gave us his written word, before God narrowed down, as it were, his blessings of salvation to the point where we're told that they're coming through Abram and then through the offspring of Abram, before that time, God had his people in the world. They were worshippers. They were believers in the coming salvation. Remember, anyone who had heard the story of the fall in the Garden of Eden and had heard that God had said that one will come who will, be born, who will be of the seed of the woman and will crush the serpent's head. Anybody who had heard that at that time in that situation had heard enough to believe in the Saviour and to be converted. They believed the promises they had heard from God. And so there were people at that time and in those times who were acting as priests. Is there any such thing these days? My answer is no, there is not. What are we? What is the church? What does scripture call us? We're the priests. We're the nation of priests. We're the people that the world should be turning to and we should be interceding for them and we should be bringing to them the word of God. Christ has made us a nation of priests. We being reborn in his image are being reborn in his works. Are we ever going to do the, the, the great and mighty miracles? You know, am I, am I going to turn up to a crowd of 5,000 with a few, few loaves and a few fish and spread the food out? I don't expect to. I don't think that's going to happen. But in terms of bringing the word of God to a, to a sinful world, in terms of bringing the healing power of the gospel to a sinful world, healing us from the damage and the harm that sin has done, we are Christ's priests in this world. And we are praying one for another and we are ministering one to another and we are ministering to the world around about us. We're the priests. There are no priests outside of the kingdom of God and there are no particular priests within the kingdom of God because we are a nation of priests. All of us, each and every one of us, our prayers. Remember, what did a priest do in the Old Testament? The priest had access to God that nobody else had. The high priest, particularly at certain times of the year, could enter right into the Holy of Holies, which signified the very presence of God. There was the Ark of the Lord and he could enter into that place and he could offer up prayers on behalf of the whole nation. Now, you and I, each and every one of us, the curtain has been torn. When Jesus paid the price for our sins, the Holy of Holies was made open to you and I. And you and I, in prayer, at any time, at any time, in any place, 
when we are in prayer, we are, as it were, in the very throne room of God on high. The Lord Jesus, holding the scepter of righteousness in his hand, is enthroned at the right hand of God the Father, and we are coming into his presence, and he's hearing us. You know, we're invited. You know, there's, there's, you know, the greatest, most holy throne room that you could possibly imagine for you and I, there's an open door. Straight in there. Straight in there. Straight into the presence of God. We're speaking to God himself. Therefore, we function as priests in the world. Each and every one of us. The priesthood of all believers is what uh, Martin Luther called it. The next point that I want to that I want to make here is surprisingly, think of the narrative thus far and think of Abram. Abram has obviously, if if you're reading the Bible forward now from Genesis chapter one and you've gotten this far, Noah was a great man. Noah was an important man. I think we'd all agree with that. Who's the next great figure in the scriptures? No, God is always the greatest figure in the scriptures. I mean the next great man. Abraham. Noah. Abraham. The next great man in the scriptures is Abraham. He's the one that we're all pointed to. Abraham receives revelation direct from God. Abraham receives the promises of God. God says to Abraham that you are going to be a blessing to all the world. If we just refresh that in our minds in Genesis chapter 12 at verse 1, now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great that sh- so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abram is the man. Abram meets Melchizedek. And instantly Melchizedek speaks as the senior man. Abram actually accepts the seniority of Melchizedek. That becomes important. In in the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul argues that Abraham had righteousness by faith before he received the sign of circumcision. Abraham had righteousness by faith before he received the sign of circumcision. Therefore, he's saying that righteousness, Paul argues, therefore righteousness is by faith. Well, okay. In the Old Testament, you have a priesthood. The the priesthood is from the sons of Aaron. And And the complaint that is made against the Christians is they have no priesthood. And so in the book of Hebrews, the author of the book of Hebrews argues... No, they don't. we don't have a priesthood. We don't have a priesthood that comes from the sons of Aaron. We have a priesthood that is Christ himself, and Christ is our priest in the likeness of Melchizedek. Abraham had a priest. Abraham, in many ways, functioned as his own priest, but he accepts the priesthood of Melchizedek. And so the author of Hebrews argues that just as Melchizedek Melchizedek was priest to Abraham, Christ is priest to us. And he uses various scriptures to argue that point out. Abram accepts the seniority of Melchizedek. He accepts the authority of Melchizedek. Melchizedek comes out to Abram bringing bread and wine. I think that Bread and wine here is basically just uh, speaking of the idea that he's brought out food, a celebratory meal. um, It's a feast. It's a feast. A great victory has been won. The people are set free from what would certainly be some brutal form of slavery. They've been brought back to their rightful places. And so he comes out bringing bread and wine. And he blesses Abram. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Many of the commentators feel that what we've got here is a very compressed, 
a very compressed retelling of the story and that probably Abram and Melchizedek spent a great deal of time speaking to one another about God's various dealings with them. And Melchizedek recognises now that God's blessing to all the earth, God's blessing to all of the people is going to come through this man, this representative man, his name is Abram. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And Abram, the one who has received the promises of God, remember God has said to Abram, you're my man, you and your children, for all of humanity throughout all of history to come, you will be remembered as my man, the man, the man through whom I brought salvation. It's all coming from the loins of Abram through your seed. With those promises, Abram still accepts that Melchizedek is the priest who can lay upon his shoulders the blessings of God. He pronounces a blessing. Not only that, Abram makes offering. Abram gives him a tenth of everything. Abram makes offering to Melchizedek. Now, this obviously means to Abram, that Melchizedek is a legitimate priest, that the, that the religion that Melchizedek practices and teaches is genuine and true religion. You know, think about if you're supporting any fund, if, if you're offering Christian charity to any church, to any missionary, to anyone, what's the first thing you, you, you what's the first question you ask? Who am I supporting and what do they do? And what do they teach? You know, there are, there are places that Lisa and I have stopped supporting. We have started to support some places and then eventually we've stopped. Why? Because we realised they weren't actually preaching the gospel. Not saying they weren't doing some good things, but they'd given up on preaching the gospel. It seemed that they were basically teaching some kind of works righteousness and we, we stepped away from it, said, no, not sending you any more money. Love the works but the works have to be accompanied with the word. We worry about who we give our money to and basically we only give our money to people whom we trust, to missions that we trust, to churches that we trust and respect. Abram gave a tenth of everything to Melchizedek. He brought back great, great booty, plunder, bounty, and he gave a tenth to Melchizedek. And so what we're told is that if Melchizedek is priest to Abram, Melchizedek is a legitimate priest, even though he is not of the same family or family line as Abram. The third thing that we're going to look at is the world's attempt to assert itself into the fellowship. I say the world, I mean the king of Sodom. You've got here fellowship between two believers, Abram and Melchizedek. They're feasting. God has given them a great, God has given Abram a great victory. Abram is being blessed by the priest. The priest is functioning as a spokesman for God. You've got a time of fellowship, a time of worship. And then this man opens his mouth. Verse 21. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. In the context of what's happening, can you see how worldly this is? Can you see how disinterested this king is in what's happening between Abram and Melchizedek? What's he learnt? Now, we've been told that Sodom is a city of great sinners against the Lord. Now, they've been humbled. A king or an alliance of kings have come from afar. They formed an alliance with like cities around about themselves, Sodom, Gomorrah, etc., etc., went out to battle. There they were defeated. Many of them fell into tar pits. They ran off to the hills. They were defeated. All their stuff was taken captive. Now, I don't know about you, but if there's something that I've sort of learned in my Christian life, it's that when God in his providence in some way or other humbles me down, whether it is I make a foolish mistake, whether it is I commit a particular sin, whether I've done some stupid thing, I ask myself, what am I supposed to be learning? 
What does God want me to take away from this now? Right here, right now. Have I, first of all, ask a question. Have I done some particular thing that I'm under the discipline of God? Is there just some particular thing? Is there something in my life that just has to be changed? Repent, get away from it, flee your sins. Is there something that you must actually do something about right here, right now? Is it just simply my attitude? The state of my heart? You know, who amongst us doesn't just simply need to be put in their place by God from time to time because when things are going right, we get big-headed. You know, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, God warns the people of Israel, never forget, never forget, you would have nothing except that I've given it to you. And when you get into this promised land, and when the grain is coming in every harvest, and when the food is good, and when the olive trees are bearing heavily, whatever you do, don't just sit around and say, haven't I done well? By, by the strength of my right hand, I have obtained everything I've got. Don't ever forget that everything you've got, I gave it to you. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of that because they're the sort of things that we take for granted. You know, we know what we're like. We know that when things go well, they're the times we're most likely to be foolish, big-headed, say things we ought not to say, do things we ought not to do, forget about the Lord. When you come to hard times, if you're wise, you start asking the Lord, what is there to learn? What can I learn here? What do I need to repent of here? How can I change things here? Is there something in my life that you're pointing out to me now, Lord? Is there something about me that needs to be improved? Do I just need to be in general a more humble and repentant person? That could well be the case. The king of Sodom has been humiliated in battle, absolutely humiliated. He either ran to the hills or he fell into a tar pit, <laughs> which I'm sure is pretty embarrassing. You know, you put on your coat of army, you get your sharpest sword, you form your army up, you go marching out to battle. That's scary. I'm going to run. And you fall into a tar pit. <laughs> yeah, he's been humiliated and humbled. And what's he learned? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. My friends, it's the work of grace. It's the work of God's Holy Spirit that humbles us down and helps us to learn from providence. It, that's when we learn. And you see people doing the same things over and over again and never learning a thing. That's the pattern of their life. Well, God's Holy Spirit is not opening their eyes to the reality of it. I could think of certain injections that are supposed to confer certain benefits and people keep lining up for more and more and more and more and more <laughs> expecting to get a positive result from doing the same thing over and over again and every other time they've done it, it gave them no benefit whatsoever. Perhaps that's illustrative of what I'm talking about. People just repeating the same foolishness over and over and over again. Here we have the king of Sodom. He's been humbled. The king's been humbled. And yet he tries to speak as though he's still the king and he tries to give an order to Abram. This is actually spoken in the imperative. It means he's giving a command. Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. As long as I've got some slaves, as long as I've got some people to rule over, as long as I can still act like the big boss... I don't care. The fields around Sodom are fertile. I'll get rich all over again. Let's you and I, Abram, strike a deal. I'll take the people, you take the goods, and we'll be friends from this time forward. That's what's being offered. That's what's sort of implied here in all of this. My friends, the world attempts to, to insert itself into the things of God. You know, we know some of the regulations we've seen. It's crazy. You know, people could go to rock concerts, stand, jump, dance, sing, scream, sweat, etc., etc., etc. 
In the last 12 months and at exactly the same time, there have been laws saying Christians in a church service have to sit more than one and a half metre apart, wear a mask and by no means sing. Whatever you do, don't sing. Now, some of the um, people from government were very open. Why is there this difference? Well, it's got to do with money. You know, tourism's a multi-billion dollar industry and so is hiring out... uh, Venues and these bands are big bands and, you know, it's got to do with money and there's no money in, no money in your paltry little churches. But, you know, the world wants to get in. It wants to start bossing God's people around. Abram's got a choice here. As I said, on the left, he's got the world, the king of Sodom, the wealth that would come from such an alliance. On the right, he's got the king of the king of Salem, the king of righteousness, the king of peace, Melchizedek, priest of God most high. Verse 22. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Ana, Eshkol and Memre take their share. So let's start asking some questions. If Abram's actions legitimised the priesthood and the kingship of Melchizedek, what have they just done concerning the kingship of the king of Sodom? If Melchizedek is... Obviously, by the actions of Abram presented to us as a legitimate king and priest, one who definitely lives in obedience to the will of God and speaks on behalf of God. Because how do we know that? Because God's man, Abram, accepted a blessing from Melchizedek and gave a tenth or a tithe to Melchizedek. What has Abram just shown us about the king of Sodom, the king of the world? the governments of the world. And when I say the world, I know he didn't rule all the world, but I'm meaning in a representative way. The king of Sodom, he represents the world, the outside influence of the world. Abram has just said, no, I don't care that you're the king of Sodom. I don't particularly care that Sodom is in the most fertile place in all of the places that I've ever been. I don't particularly care for your wealth. I don't particularly care about your religion. I don't particularly care about being your ally. I have raised my hand to the true king. I have sworn allegiance to the true king. I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Notice that he repeats Melchizedek's words. This is further legitimation. He's legitimising that which Melchizedek had said. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Abram says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord God. And there we have it, most high, possessor of heaven and earth. You know, if, um, how, 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 how would I put this? Let's say you're forming a particularly close friendship. Or let's say even, you know, perhaps... Perhaps we're talking about love. Perhaps we're talking about romance. Um, When people start to repeat what the other person says, it's actually an indicator that they're drawing closer. You know, young romancing couples and even older married couples, we all get our own little sayings. No one else might really know what we're saying or what, what we're talking about. But I say it, for example... And Lisa says exactly the same thing. We know exactly what we meant. My phrase is repeated by Lisa. Lisa's phrase is repeated by me. When people repeat after someone else, I agree with you. I know what you mean. I am uniting myself to you. Abram agrees with and unites himself, as it were, to Melchizedek by using exactly the same words. I have sworn, and look what he says at verse 23. I won't take anything of yours from a thread to a sandal strap. Nothing. I'm the servant of God. 
I want what God has given me. I don't want anything that you can give me. My friends, this is the attitude that we've got to take to the world. I want what God has given me. I don't want what the world can give me. Does that mean we don't have houses, don't have cars, etc.? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying everyone should live in a cave, wear kangaroo skins and, uh, you know, eat only dried fruits. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say is we do honest work, we try to live wisely, and we allow God to bless us as God sees fit. You know, if, if your great dream in life is to be a multimillionaire or billionaire, I doubt that it is God who is inspiring that dream. I strongly doubt it. If your great dream in life is to be some kind of magnate, I doubt that it is God who is inspiring you to that. Honestly, I do. Remember, we as Christians, what has the Apostle Paul said? That we should live humbly, work with our hands. Live humbly, work with our hands. That we should live righteously in the sight of the world around us. God does bless Christians. Many Christians do actually, in the end, accumulate wealth, respectable wealth. But that's fine. They weren't seeking the wealth. What were they seeking? They were seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all other things were added unto them. Abram says, I serve God. I will settle for what God has given me. At this point in time, I have to ask a question. I wonder if Lot was hearing this conversation. Because if he was, he should have taken it as a rebuke. Remember, Lot came to the time of division. They're on a, they're on a uh, mountain range. Lot looks east and sees the fertile, well-watered valley, sees the well-constructed cities and the well-ordered fields and thinks to himself, that looks like a great place to live. He looks to the west, he sees hills, he sees, you know, lots of up and down, as it were. Basically out there, it's, it's free-range grazing country. You're not going to stay in any single place for too, for too long. That kind of life. And he thinks, you know, wouldn't it be nice to be down there amongst the well-watered fields, near to one of those well-constructed cities, lots of opportunity down there, lots of trading going on down there, lots of comfort going on down there. The newspapers will get delivered every day. I won't even have to get out of bed. And so we went down there and remember last week we looked at the fact that in the beginning Lot was against Sodom. He moved fairly close to the city but by uh, chapter 14 down at verse 12 of chapter 14 we found out that he was now dwelling in Sodom. He'd made the money and he invested in the real estate market. He'd gotten into the flashiest city around. It was called Sodom. They had some really nice housing estates. And in there he went. And there he traded. And I'm sure he was accumulating wealth. That's what attracted him. And Abram says, I want nothing to do with Sodom. I want nothing to do with the wealth that's gained from Sodom. I want nothing to do with the king of Sodom. Are you listening, Lot? You know, I wonder if he almost looked over his shoulder. You know, somewhere just back there a bit. Speaks to the king, looks at Lot. You know, the way preachers sometimes do. Speaks to, the, speaks to one person, looks at another. Are you listening? Are you hearing what it is that I'm saying? I know that you believe in Yahweh, my God, who has made covenant promises to me. Do you understand, Lot, that you should therefore live the way that Yahweh desires you to live? Stop dealing with Sodom? I can't help but think that that was there. An indirect rebuke directed at Lot. Notice that Abram deals faithfully with his allies. We were told that Abram had allies earlier on in chapter 14. Well, the word that tells us they were allies is a word that's very closely associated to the idea of covenant. He'd made covenant with those people. Looking at chapter 14 and verse 13. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Anah. These were allies of Abram. 
He had made covenant with them. Now, what's the importance of this to me? Why, why am I pointing this out? Well, when we finally get to Genesis chapter 15, which I think is two sermons away, there God makes a formalised covenant with Abram. And Abram, the text implies when we get there that Abram is just incredibly excited. Like this is just beyond belief to Abram. God tells Abram, get the animals, cut them in half, and Abram goes, a covenant with God? A covenant? In his mind, in his heart, a covenant is something that nobody backs out of. It's something that is kept, that it is held. It is so important that it is never, ever to be broken. A covenant. Abram had made a covenant with these men who were his allies, Ana, Eshcol and Memre. And he said, let them have their share. Verse 24, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Ana, Eshcol and Memre take their share. He was negotiating on behalf of his covenant allies that they should receive blessing. And there's another way, you know, we have spoken of how um, Abram is now as, in a way, God's man upon the earth. He, he negotiates a blessing for those with whom he has a covenant. In Abraham's mind, or in Abram's mind, that's what you do when you're in a covenant relationship. You look after your covenant allies at all times and in every way, no matter what the circumstance. As I said, that's why when we come to Genesis chapter 15, we find that he was so amazingly, joyfully blessed at the thought that God was going to strike a covenant with himself. So what, what do we draw from um, this in terms of conclusions? Well, Abram had functioned as his own priest. Genesis chapter 12, verses 7 to 8, we know that he built altars. What do you do with altars? You make offerings on altars. You make an offering. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 7, where we're looking at where we will be, the Lord willing, looking at Abram and Isaac and the offering of Isaac. Isaac says to Abram, he says, okay, you've got the knife. I've got, I've got the wood here on my back. We're going somewhere. We're obviously going to worship. It means a burnt offering. Where's the sheep for the offering? So what do we know about Isaac? Isaac has been raised in a family, in a context where God is worshipped and where Abram makes offerings. In other words, Abram is functioning as his own priest. Yet, Abram has accepted the priesthood of Melchizedek. And notice, at this point in time, the law has not been given. I'm not saying there was no law. There was always law. Righteousness is righteousness. That which is right in the eyes of God has always been that which is right in the eyes of God. But there was no formal giving of the law. That comes through Moses. We have a priesthood. We have salvation by faith. And we have a priest who is functioning as representative of God apart from the law apart from the written law. This covenant that Abram has with God very closely resembles what we would call the new covenant. It's very much like it. Abram is justified by faith. Abram himself functions as a priest. Abram has a priest who could be described as God. Remember, that which we read in our New Testament readings concerning Melchizedek. We were told that he was a mysterious person. No, no genealogy recorded, no mother, no father. The beginning not recorded, the end not recorded. It's not saying that Melchizedek was God, but definitely saying that Abram had a priest, though he himself was a priest, Abram had a priest who functioned as a spokesman for God. 
You see, there's similarities here. Who's our great high priest? It's the Lord Jesus. As I said, next time we're in Genesis, we're going to look at this. We're going to look at the references to Melchizedek found in other parts of the scripture. We're going to look at the theological, um, going to look a whole lot more at the theological um, impact of what we learn here in this short little passage in the book of Genesis. Abram is God's man. Abram is God's man. If, if you want to think of it this way, you could think that at this point in time, Melchizedek is the last of a line. In a way, the last of a line. What do I mean by the last of a line? It's basically coming to the end of a legitimate priesthood operating anywhere outside of God's written word. Remember, the nations, it would appear they had their priests of God most high and people of the nations could be worshippers of God most high through the functioning of that priesthood. But it's coming to an end. Why? Because God has promised that the nations will be blessed through Abram and that Abram will be the father of many nations and from Abram's seed will come the one who crushes the head of the serpent. And now that God has made this revelation, well, it's like this. That which God reveals to you, he expects you to take it for what it is. You don't get to say, look, that's all very good. That's all very good, but I'd prefer to do it my way. I'd prefer to believe in God my way. You know, I, I have my belief and, you know, that's all very good. It's nice that the scripture says this and the scripture says that and Moses said this and David said that. That's all very good, but my God, my God. Let me tell you something. Unless someone is actually quoting a passage of scripture where it speaks of my God, God, my God, the Lord, my Lord. If someone's just talking about my God and they're speaking of my God divorced from the scripture, you can almost guarantee their God is an idol. Their God is God who does not exist. Their God is a God of their own invention. Their God is basically themselves painted up to be some kind of superhero. When God reveals himself, God expects, God demands that we accept his self-revelation for what it is, and we respond in worshipful obedience. And so the days of that priesthood outside of the promised line, they're coming to an end. Abram, the offspring of Abram, the seed of Abram, it's through that line that all the nations of the world will be blessed. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, once more, we give you thanks for that which you have revealed to us in your holy scriptures. We give you thanks for the many blessings that you have poured out upon us. We give you thanks, our Father, that we may turn to your holy word and from it we may know you truly for who you have revealed yourself to be. Our Father, we praise you that we who are your people now dwell, as it were, in the priesthood of all believers. Father, we praise you that we know that our prayers are heard in the very throne room of heaven. Now, Father, we pray that you would indeed prompt us to be a people of prayer. May our hearts and our minds ever be turned toward you. May we, may we be made faithful in this priestly service. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.